Hello and welcome to another Perusia podcast where we're journeying through the footprints of God um, with a good friend, Steve Ray, who is the founder and the brains behind this, this exciting program, Footprints of God series. And today we've been doing a monthly series, a virtual <laughs> pilgrimage, if you like, um, and uh, we are up to now St. Peter. And I've got the DVD here based on this. We're going to discuss St. Peter today and he joins me uh, live. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? Hello, Charbel. Doing good. Looking forward to this. Uh, we've come a long way through the Bible and all the Absolutely. way up to Peter now. Yes, we've we've journeyed. Um, maybe a recap. We've journeyed for all the way from Adam and Abraham, and, and and just right through. And you've got a DVD series on each one of these topics that we've covered. Um, and now we're in the New Testament. Um, and right in Advent, ideally, we had Jesus, the coming of Christ. But now, uh, now that Jesus has come, this is a fitting one. Next, Peter, um, tell us a little bit about um, about yeah the journey here. Well, the story of salvation, that's what my series is called. Um, it's called The Footprints of God, The Story of Salvation from Abraham to Augustine. We have one more to do. We've got nine done, and you and I are now on our uh, seventh. We've got two more to go. We have. I wanted to present the whole story of the Bible and do it on video so that people could see that this is real history, that it really happened. These places exist. It did not begin with once upon a time in a land far away in this marvelous fairy tale called the Bible. No, it's not a fairy tale. This is true, real, objective, objective history. And I wanted to go to all these places and show people where they existed. So when they read the Bible, when they hear these stories, they can put in their minds, oh, that's where Abraham lived. That's why we went to Iraq and a turkey and all to we filmed this i figured out 13 countries by the time we're done that we went to to film this whole series so we have started with the old covenant which was four classes one was adam and eve up through abraham isaac and jacob then they go into the land of egypt so we pick up with moses and moses brings them around in joshua into the promised land then we had the kings david and solomon built the kingdom and the people were always living in sin boy doesn't that sound familiar and so in god's kingdom there was sin everywhere so he had to send the prophets who were the conscience they spoke the truth and they were almost all of them killed because of it but at least they spoke the truth and i think a lot of us prophets today are going to be probably killed eventually too because the world is certainly turning to be very anti-christian anti-democratic anti-christian everything else we can think of it's amazing i mean if you live in america what's happening here in our country it's just going downhill so fast it's like uh, like a toboggan down a snow hill um and so the prophets came. And the, by the way, there's prophets in the New Testament too. It says that the church has prophets and the prophets should be speaking and calling out sin and unrighteousness. And so the prophets came and did that. And then for that took place over a thousand year time period. And then Mary and John the Baptist came and we covered that. And then Jesus was born and he brought salvation to the world. And then now we're dealing with uh, Peter because Jesus said, well, I'm going away, guys. I'm going up to heaven. I'm not going to be with you in person like I have been before, walking on two feet. But it's better that I go because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to inhabit the church and inhabit each of you. And because this is not just a me and Jesus kind of a thing, I'm establishing a church. 
Jesus used that word. I'm building a church. Well, if you build an organization, it's a visible organization. You have to be able to see it. It has an address. Well, who's in charge of this organization? Jesus is. Yes, but Jesus went to heaven. He's not here anymore. The way every kingdom works is that the king, if he's going to be gone for a while, he leaves a royal steward, someone in charge of the kingdom. So now Jesus has left. When we finished up our story last month, Jesus had gone. Now there's just these 12 guys standing there looking around at each other. What are we going to do now? And they all said, well, Peter, he gave you the keys. I guess you're in charge. And Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, full of the Holy Spirit, and he began to preach. And Peter was in charge of the church and the others had a like authority. Matthew chapter 18 says that all of Jesus said to them, all of you have the power to bind and loose, but Peter has that power with the keys. So that's where we're come to up to this point. The kingdom of God is now beginning on earth. It's a visible organization. It's not an invisible brotherhood of people who all love Jesus, which is what I used to think when I was an evangelical Protestant. <laughs> we're all just kind of in this uh, loosey-goosey, everybody's a lone ranger Christian. We have Jesus and the Holy Spirit lives with us, and I got the Bible, and you got the Bible, and let's get together and pray and share the faith, brother. Let's fellowship. But in reality, that's not what Jesus left behind. He left behind a church, an organization, and it has a head, just like the kingdom of God did in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God in the New Testament is the same. And Peter was in charge. So that's why we're up to this guy now. He was a fumbling, bumbling, many ways, a weak human being. Jesus picked the weakest link first in yes. the chain of the papacy. <laughs> Let's talk about now, why choose Peter? Let's. Who is he? What Can we learn a bit about his upbringing, his family? Um, and, and just a bit about what he, he was like, what, and, and then we can go into why he chose him. <laughs> his father was named John. We don't know anything about his father. We just know uh, Simon, son of John, says that he's, that's his father's name. People back in then were named after their father. So Simon, son of John. In fact, if you go to the Middle East today, and you're from the Middle East, and I'll bet you if you went to Lebanon, you'll find that men are not called by their own name. They are Abu Philippe, Abu Charbel. That's right. Abu, Abu Jesse, which means that the father is known by the name of his son. And so I'm Abu, father of Jesse. And in, in the Middle East, they don't call you, nobody would call you Charbel if you were in the normal Middle Eastern Arabic speaking culture. What's your, what's your son's name? Michael. So yeah, Abu Michael. You would be Abu Michael, father of Michael. That's how you would be known. That is your name. And Abu, this would be, um, his, his father would be called Abu Simon. Peter's name was Simon and his father would no longer use his name, John. He would be known by the name of his son, Simon. Simon did not have a name, Peter, until he got to be an older man. He was only one name. His name was Simon. And he was born in Bethsaida, which means the house of the fishermen. Beth, house, Saida, fisherman. He was born on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And along with his brother, Andrew, and another man who we know named Philip. So three of the apostles were born in Bethsaida up in the north, but it was in a different province. In order to go from Bethsaida down to Capernaum or... or um, Magdala, 
where the fish were processed, you had to go cross a line. It's like going from different states or provinces. And when you did, you had to pay a tax. Guess who was sitting in Capernaum at the tax booth? It was Matthew, the IRS agent, the tax collector, the enemy of the people. And so Peter, I'm going to call him Simon until he gets his name changed. I'll try to remember to call him only Simon. Simon and his brother Andrew learned fishing from their father in Bethsaida. And he was married and, and Andrew was married. They had families. And one day Peter says, you know what, Andrew, it's not a good idea to stay up here in Bethsaida. Because even though we were born and raised here and we're right on the water, Every time we take our fish down to Magdala to get processed, we have to pay a tax. And this isn't good business. Peter was a good businessman. I gave a talk a while ago for Legatus, and it was an hour talk on Peter, the good businessman, how astute and business oriented he was. He was much smarter than we give him credit for. So he packed up his family with Andrew and they moved from Bethsaida to another province in Capernaum, where they would now be able to establish their business without having to pay the tax. So I'm, I'm making this point to show that Peter is not a bumbling idiot. Peter is a very smart man. He's a businessman. He has business partners. He has fishing boats. He has employees who work for him. Jesus didn't just come along and pick some bumbling idiot off the street and say, hey, hey, you homeless guy, come over here. I want you to be in charge of my church. I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you and you'll be able to do it. That the whole Catholic church understands that grace builds on nature. In other words, all of us have certain gifts and talents. And Jesus knew Peter's natural abilities and his natural strengths and his ability as an entrepreneur and a manager. And he said, this guy is a good one. I'm going to have to work with him a bit because he has his weaknesses. He speaks too much. He's too loud. He is too cocky, too arrogant. And he, even though he's got a good heart, he says more than he can actually live up to. But I'm going to work with this guy and grace will build on nature. So this is a little bit about his early life. And I think he met Jesus more than once, probably a number of times because Jesus was kicked out of Nazareth up in the mountains and he came down about a, a six hour walk from Nazareth to Capernaum after they tried to kill him and it said that he moved in with Peter and Andrew they lived together Peter and Andrew big families back then and all the kids were all the cousins were considered brothers brothers of the Lord all these cousins were brothers uh, Jesus had brothers too, called brothers of the Lord, extended family members. And Andrew and Peter living in Capernaum, Jesus comes down to Capernaum and he moves into their house. And we know Peter's married because it said Jesus cured his mother-in-law. And you, know, I, I, this is really bad. I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's, it's a bad guide joke. We always say, you know why Peter denied Jesus later in life? Because he healed his mother-in-law. <laughs> bad mother-in-law joke yeah, I apologize. i'm sorry i'm all sorry mother-in-laws <laughs> but all but I, I i am the one that has wonderful mother-in-law unbelievably good mother-in-law but this is just a, I, I do a, too by the way just for the record yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that's just a very sorry um sad guide joke but all the guides yeah. tell <laughs> in israel so 
they Jesus moves in with Peter and Andrew, and he becomes part of the family for three years of his earthly ministry. And I think that they knew each other for a while before because we get two different accounts of Jesus's calling mm. of Peter and Andrew. Andrew, Peter's brother, was a disciple of John the Baptist. Before he ever knew Jesus, he was a disciple of John the Baptist, which shows you something about the family. The family was waiting for the Messiah. They were preparing for this. And Andrew and John the Apostle were both already disciples of John the Baptist. Now, Peter, it doesn't ever say that he was. Peter might have been more, a little more interested in money and running the business than Andrew was. It's fun to speculate and to kind of meditate on these things, how the family structure worked. And because we don't see Peter uh, having this intense spirituality that John and Andrew displayed, but he did have personal characteristics that Jesus said, that's the guy right there. He's the guy, he's going yeah. he's gonna to be the shepherd. He's going to have the keys. I'm going to make him the rock and I'm going to build a lot into this guy. So that's it, a little it, bit it, about their beginning. Uh, very fascinating. I'm, I'm just as you're speaking, and, and with, you know, you made the point about not, um, cousins being called brothers, and I just, but, but just so Jesus actually did have cousins, um, and so if Andrew is a, is a cousin, so Andrew's parents, uh, do we know? Uh, um, this is just a side question, but do we know the link, say, to Our Lady or, or Saint Joseph? Um, like, is it their brother or sister? that is the parent of, and do we know, is it first cousin or second cousin or, or we just I don't, don't know? I don't think we know any relationship between Jesus and Peter, any okay. physical relationship, but there is, seems to be with John because yes. John and James, it says that Mary was a relative of, of Elizabeth who is John the Baptist. I'm sorry. It's, it's John the Baptist who we know is somehow. Okay, related. Yeah. So it'd be like a second cousin. Yeah. Right. But the apostles, we don't know of any any tie there's doubtful any relationship okay. familial relationship between them but andrew and peter are definitely brothers and james okay. and john are brothers and all four of them are business partners in the fishing business and owned okay. and owned boats and owned they had partners and employees mm -hmm. in fact to the interesting point that when peter after three years comes back to capernaum in john 21 he says to the guys well jesus went up to heaven i don't know where he is he no, not yet into heaven, but he he's, he just kind of pops in and out wherever, whenever he wants to. You know, we, we met him up at Mount of Transfiguration and we met him in, in the upper room and he, he just kind of pops in and out. And then, so what do you guys want to do now? I mean, we don't know what to do. They said, let's go back fishing. That's what we know what to do. Let's go back fishing. John 21, they go back in Peter's boat. They go out fishing again. Right. <laughs> it seems like Peter's business is still there which means he's really a good businessman. Charbel, you have a business. Can you walk away from that for three years and come back and have it still there? And all? It's not, not, it's, not a, uh, it's not an easy thing to do unless you're a good manager and you have a good business set up yes. and partners. Well, anyway, so uh, Jesus is living there with Andrew and Peter and Peter has a mother-in-law. And later in tradition, it also says he has a daughter and he said to his wife, when the time for persecution came, he says, remember the Lord. Don't, don't deny the Lord. When his wife was going to martyrdom, he, 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 the tradition recalls that he said, do not deny him. Remember the Lord. But yeah, that's wow. a little bit about his early life. He is a great fisherman, great businessman. 
Um, probably and very strong, devoted kind of a guy. He's yes. he's passionate. He's <laughs> got passion in his heart. In fact, he is so passionate. And this is why I think Jesus loved him so much because he said, "No one's going to hurt you, Jesus. I'm going to stick up for you. I'll fight for you. I'll die for you." And he's got a good heart. But when it push came to shove, he couldn't always live up. He he was a better salesman than he was a deliverer. <laughs> He sold himself better than he could actually live up to. But but Jesus loved that enthusiasm. There is a, now, yes, one of those times he said, I'll, I'll die for you was was uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. And there is a bit of a, a, a difference between Protestant and Catholic understanding of who Peter is um, as the leader or, or as the first pope. Catholics would say he's the first pope. But could you, you were both sides of the fence here. You were a Protestant yourself. And um, what what was Peter like to you? And, and can you tell us, explain the, the typical difference between Protestant and Catholic understanding of Peter? Well, uh, in a funny way, I'll say it this way, that you know, we, when we're evangelicals, we tend to say, okay, Peter is the Catholic apostle and Paul is the Protestant apostle. <laughs> you know, Paul's the one that God really used. Actually, let's face it, Peter only wrote two books of the New Testament, and they're not very long. And Paul wrote probably 13. He wrote half the books of the New Testament, not half the words, but half the books of the New Testament are Paul's. And some even believe the book of Hebrews is Paul's, which would make 14, which means more than half the books of the New Testament. So Paul wins. Hands down. Paul's a good one. He's the Protestant apostle. And Peter didn't probably, um, he, he wasn't quite up on the whole thing of salvation by faith alone. You know, Paul was the one who really grabbed that and ran with it and brought the gospel to the world. And so there was, there's a whole idea that maybe Peter was the guy who got things started, but Paul was really the one who brought the real gospel to the world. And it's a real misunderstanding that somehow they were opposed to each other. Mm. That, uh, Paul was the lone ranger galloping around the Roman Empire, setting up independent Baptist churches. And, uh, and uh, Peter was more um, influenced by the Jews and kind of got, had a difficult time getting out of the whole Jewish, the muck of the Judaizers that you had to be circumcised and all these things. And that Peter was kind of the guy that really picked up the ball and ran with it. In reality, they were both the same. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that Peter was the first one that brought a Gentile into the church. He's the first one that uh, heard the message. They don't, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to be Jewish first to become. See, this is the problem. Even the word Christian, people don't realize that the word Christian means one who believes in the Jewish Messiah, because the word Christ is the same as the word Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. They both mean anointed one, the Messiah. And when you say you're a Christian, you are one who follows a Jewish Messiah. Oh, okay. Well, if you're going to follow the Jewish Messiah, then you have to be circumcised and become a Jew first. And that's what the Jews in Jerusalem were saying. And Peter said, no, you don't. In Acts chapter 15 and 49 AD, this was 20 years after the, he stood up, he says, you do not have to be circumcised and follow the 613 laws of Moses. All you need to do is have faith in Christ and be baptized and obey. And so Peter and, and uh, Paul taught the very same thing. And Paul had tremendous respect for Peter, even though people like to say that they were enemies. Yeah, that first, uh, what we call the first council of the church 
in Jerusalem when they all came back together, which is profound in the book of Acts. And, and as we can see the church in action right there, and then Peter um, standing up as, as leader there. And, and so, yeah, they were naturally, Paul, as any uh, bishop or, or, or cardinal should be, you know, you raise a, 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 an issue and they, they come together as a church and, and, and nut it out and, and then they pray about it. And, and, yeah, so there we go, the first council of the church, which is interesting. But what does the Peter mean? I mean, what does the name Peter mean? Well, this this takes us into a whole um, a whole another auditorium here, a whole another yeah. discussion. Here we go. <laughs> I, I'm going to start by the fact that Jesus decided to give this name in a very special place. And if you want to see that place, get my DVD because I go there and I explain all of this and the the importance of the geographical location cannot be underestimated because when you go to Caesarea Philippi which is where Jesus said these words it was probably a i'd have to say a two or three day walk away from Capernaum to the north right up to where you're from uh, Charbel right up to the Lebanese border wow in fact when i take my groups up there and we drive the bus along, we go right along the border with Lebanon. You can see the signs. We're right there. The barbed wire fence is right there. And when we go along that barbed wire fence, we come to a place called Banyas, which in the time of Jesus was called Caesarea Philippi, right on the Lebanese border. And there's a huge rock and a cave. And there was a temple in front of it. I don't have time to go through all of this now because it's a whole hour talk that I give to explain this site and, and this. But he took them up there because it was a site that would help explain what he was going to say to them. Because he's going to give Peter a new name, which is Rock, and he's doing it right in front of a huge rock. So it's just incredible dynamics of the backdrop Jesus picked to do this. Now, he went all the way up there to this huge rock which there was a temple on, by the way, the temple to Caesar Augustus. And Jesus is going to start a new church, and there's a false church there already on a false rock. But that's all another topic for another day. <clears throat> I do it in my book and in my movies. But when he gets there, he says, who do men say that I am? And they all said, nobody knows. The Jerusalem Post is full of editorials and a bit uh, columns about who you are who is this jesus nobody knows who you are some say you're john the baptist come back to life some say you're elijah john the baptist who, who nobody knows and jesus says all right you've been with me for three years because at this point it's been three years he's on his way now to jerusalem to be crucified and he says who do you say that i am and they all look at each other peter blurts out you are the christ the son of the living god Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. It wasn't from the gray matter between your ears. What you just said came from a revelation from God. And what I like to say is at that moment, Peter had defined Jesus, who Jesus was. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus smiles and leans into Peter and says, Peter, thank you for defining me. Now I'm going to define you. I'm going to return the favor and I'm going to define you. You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. He just defined who Peter was and gave him a new name. Yeah. New wow. names in the Bible are very significant because a new name means a new calling, a new dignity, a new office. We started with Abraham. He was just called father. 
no children, but when God called him with a covenant to become the one who is going to have the covenant that's going to bring Christ into the world and all nations will be blessed through you. You don't have a son, but you're going to, and that son is going to have sons and sons and they'll be able to, won't be able to count them. They'll be like the sands of the sea. And I'm changing your name from father to father of nations. The name change meant a new dignity, a new office, a new calling and a position. Jacob also received a new name. When a new name comes, it means something. When you see a new name in the Bible, put on the brakes and stop and think about it. What just happened? Why the new name? Even Mary got a new name. Her name was Miriam. But the angel said, Hail Kahare Tomene, the one who has been made full of grace, which is Mary's name in the eyes of God. New names are significant. Simon gets a new name, Peter. Well, Peter in English doesn't mean anything in English. What does that mean, Peter? You were here at Mass. You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. There's no correspondence. There's no wordplay in English. It's But if you hear it in French, a lot of Lebanese speak French. Do you speak French? Uh, not really. Uh, but um, I, I know, uh, yeah, there's different words uh, of rock. Um, you can you can call a big Pierre. rock or a small rock. Pierre, when you Pierre. say, when you read this passage in, in French, it says, you are Pierre, and on this Pierre, I will build my church. Interesting. One it's word. the same word in French. And when you read it in Greek, and here's why, when I was a Baptist, I thought I had you guys by the kneecaps. Because <laughs> I said, you know, if you Catholics would read it in the original language, it doesn't say you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. It says you are Petros, and on this Petra. I will build my rock. Petros is different from Petra, but you Catholics don't know that because you don't know your Bibles. Yeah. Why does Matthew translate it Petros? You are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church because the word in Greek, like in Spanish, mm -hmm. nouns have gender. Any noun is either masculine or feminine. If you say tree, rock, house, star, dirt, and they all are either feminine or masculine ending. The word for rock is Petra, and it happens to be a feminine noun. Jesus cannot name this 250-pound fisherman Petra. He's going to introduce him to his friends. They say, who is this big guy with you? And he says, that's my friend, Petra. <laughs> you can't name him Petra. So Jesus puts a masculine ending on the end of a feminine word, and he changes the feminine Petra into the masculine Petros, still the same word, but with a masculine ending. Now he can say, I would like to introduce you to Petros, my <laughs> chief steward. You know, people today don't like masculinity. In America, we call it, the feminists call it toxic masculinity as though it's a bad thing. Masculinity is not a bad thing. It's a gift of God. And Peter was big guy, Peter, Petros, the rock. So he then, but the problem is, is that uh, Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek. Jesus was speaking in Aramaic. So we're now three languages removed. We're speaking in English, but it's translated in the Bible into Greek. But Jesus, we know, was speaking Aramaic. So what did he say? He said, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I'll build my 
church. There's no masculine and feminine in Arab in Aramaic. It's very similar to Hebrew. There's no masculine, no feminine. The nouns are nouns. And Jesus said, you are kefa, and on this kefa, I'll build my church. And how do I know that? Because I know the Bible. You go back to John chapter 142, when Jesus first met Simon, his brother Andrew brings him to Jesus, and he says, Simon, come here, come here. You got to meet this guy, the Messiah. I just met him. And Simon walks up, and Jesus said, hello there, Simon. You will be renamed Cephas, which is Pepha. And John knows that you don't know what that means. So in parentheses, you read John chapter 142, it says, which means rock. Jesus, when he first met Peter, says, I'm going to name you rock. So this is why he got the name. This is what it means. So when we hear today that you, that Peter, the name Peter, it means rock. It is the new name that Jesus gave him. And new names signify new authority, new dignity, a new office. And let's jump to this one now because it's a question I know you're going to ask me in a bit. Was, didn't Peter and Paul not get along? Didn't Paul kind of look down on Peter? He even criticized him once. Well, yes, he did. But he also says in Galatians and Acts that when I went up to see Cephas, he didn't say Simon. If he wanted to belittle him or kind of diss him, dismiss him. He would have said, I went up to see Simon and, you know, he was, eh. he said, I went up to Jerusalem to see the rock. And there I met the rock. This is how Paul refers to Simon Peter as the rock. That's a little bit about the names. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. And um, it really puts in perspective, clarifies the language difference. So don't get caught up with Petros or Petra. It's Kepha. <laughs> End of the day, it's rock. Right. I build on rock. Um, and, and it's very significant. You've been to the very place and you describe it as being a big rock that they're standing on or they're, or they're right there. So that's significant in itself, which is quite interesting. He chose that part uh, to, to say that, um, that new name change, which is quite beautiful. Oh, yeah. The, the, Jesus was a master teacher. I'm going to try and print out a picture. I should have had this for you ahead of time, but I can do it real easy because I have all of these pictures on my website and my uh, camera. Very easy. So I'm going to get the picture of this and show it to you what it looked like at the time of Jesus. And I'll just take you a minute here, but I, I'm going to keep talking while I print it. OK, there it goes. And then I'll bring it up and show it to you. And so uh, the whole thing is Jesus was a master teacher. And he loved backdrops because he said, whose image is on the coin? Look at the rocks of the field. All the time he's using backdrops. And he did the best backdrop ever here because you're dealing with a huge rock, which the, the printer is now starting to hum over here. It is a huge rock. And in front of the rock is a cave, a big cave, massive cave. And in front of the rock at the time of Jesus was a temple to the divine Caesar Augustus. Now that cave was thought to be the entrance to the underworld of the dead. That's where the gods all lived. Gods lived in the, at the center of the earth. So this cave was the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. Now, I, I, while I get the picture, I'm going to let that register with people a little bit. It should be going, there's a big rock and there's a cave, which are the gates of hell. And there's kind of a fake church in front of it. So I'm going to let ding, ding, ding. I'll be right back. Yeah, absolutely. This is fascinating by Steve Ray on this DVD series, Peter, uh, Keeper of the Keys. So we're going to 
unpack this. Looking forward to this. Very excited it's taken, about it. What it's taken a minute to print, but it, no it, it'll get there. I'll know when it comes out. I can, I'll be able to. I've wondered while we're waiting, uh, Petra, Petros, what is the Protestant understanding and what is the point of whether it's Petros or Petra? Uh, for those who aren't unfamiliar with that argument, so what is the issue, whether it's Petros or Petra? What, what, what's the argument there? Well, the Protestants would like to say that it's two different words. Therefore, it's not the same thing. Jesus is saying, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Jesus is the rock. It comes from what they'll do is go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where, where Paul says, there is no other foundation that the church can be built on other than Jesus Christ. He is the only foundation. Well, if he's the only foundation, then how can right. Peter be the foundation? Now, first of all, let's let's say this. Jesus said Peter's going to be the rock he's building a church on. Paul says that Jesus is the rock. Jesus said it's Peter. Paul says it's the rock. Well, first of all, I have to believe one or the other. I'm going to believe Jesus, not Paul. But they're both scriptures, so I have to believe both of them, right? So, okay, here's the thing. When I was in school, they said, don't mix the metaphors. You can't mix metaphors or illustrations. In Matthew, Jesus is saying that he is the builder, Peter mm -hmm. is the rock foundation, and he's building the church, which is us, on top of Peter, okay? Paul is using a different illustration to prove something different. He's saying Jesus is the foundation. Now, who's the builder in this story? Paul is the builder, and we are the stones being built up. So that Paul is trying to teach something different and using a different illustration than Jesus is to make another point over here. Yes. And so what Protestants do is they're very careless and sloppy with studying the Bible. And they take those two different illustrations that are not parallel. And he tried to squeeze them together and say that, well, how can Jesus be the builder and the foundation? See, they're, they're two different stories. And the Protestant will say that when it says that Jesus is the, pet, Jesus is the Petra, and they'll try to say that the word Petros means small pebble that you are the small pebble, I'm the big rock, which the church will be. That's not a blessing. That's an insult. That is diminishing, Peter. Oh, you're just a little pebble. You're not important. I'm the big rock. See, this is not the case because then the next step is he gives them the keys of the kingdom. These were two huge blessings. They were yeah. not diminishing Peter. They were exalting him. They were things that were setting him as a very important place. You are the rock and I'm giving you the keys. And if you do anything other than that, you minimize it and you make a farce of what Jesus said. And the fact is, is that in biblical Greek, there is no such thing as petros, meaning small pebble. It's not used. And I have in my book, Upon This Rock, yes. which I publish. I'm going to grab a copy and show you that. My book, Upon This Rock, I go through pages showing you from Protestant and Greek Orthodox scholars that there's no justification for saying Peter's not the rock. The best Protestant scholars agree with the Catholics on that issue. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you for clarifying that. You're welcome. Um, the picture is coming. My printer is slow here for some reason today. That's, well, maybe we can move on to the, the keys um, uh, as, as you're getting that. Because, that, uh, because that'll fit too. Keys. Yes, what please. What the heck are keys for? Yes, exactly. Well, well when please I was explain. a Baptist, uh, when I was a Baptist, I said it was very simple. Jesus gave Peter the keys. We all hear the joke about Peter standing at the gates of heaven. 
And when he, uh, when you get there, he opens the key doors of heaven and lets you in because he's got the keys, right? Jesus gave him the keys. Well, what are the keys? The keys are the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that if you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and ask him into your heart, you get saved. Get out of the Catholic Church. Accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and I just got you saved. Guess what? I just use the keys of the kingdom. All of us have the keys. You've got the keys. Everybody's got the keys. We can get everybody saved. It's the keys into the heaven. We're opening the gate through the gospel. Well, the fact is, is that when Jesus spoke to Peter, there was also in the Greek language, when you speak, there's a first, second, and third person too. And when Jesus, in, in the South, some people will know this, many don't, but in the South, there's this thing they do if you say you one person it's you but if it's a couple people it's y'all <laughs> and if it's a whole bunch of people they say all y'all all y'all you should try to get that started in australia it's really good because it oh. tells you how many people you're referring to when you use the word you but anyway bottom line is when jesus spoke to peter he didn't say i'm giving all y'all the keys because in greek it was singular i'm giving you Peter, exclusively the keys of the kingdom. So he didn't give them to everybody. And the, what are the keys? Well, when you look in Jewish history, if you go to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, I'm going to say this verse and then I'm going to see if it resonates with people. There's a royal steward who works for the king and he's a bad royal steward. So the prophet Isaiah says, God's going to take the keys of the kingdom away from you and give them to Eliakim to become the new royal steward of the kingdom. There's only one royal steward. He works second to the king, and he carries the keys of the king. And it says, I'm going to give you the key. God will give you the keys, and what you open, no man will shut, and what you shut, no man will open. Ding, 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 ding. I'll give that a moment to register while I get the picture. Yes, fantastic. So what is happening there? Jesus is the king. He is the king. He's, the angel said to Mary in Nazareth that you are going, your son's going to sit on the throne of his father, David, the king. So Mary knows that. Jesus is the king. And what does a king do? He appoints his royal steward. It's called the major domo, the vizier, the one over the house of the king. There's only one set of keys. The king owns the keys, but he delegates the keys to his royal steward. The royal steward gets up early in the morning while the king is still sleeping, and he opens the the gates of the kingdom and the royal treasury. He does all these things because he has the keys delegated to him by the king. Jesus is the king. He is soon to leave the earth to go to heaven to prepare a place for us. John chapter 14, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. He's going away to do this, but he's leaving someone in charge of the kingdom down here in his absence, just like every king of Israel did from the beginning. And he gives Peter the keys of the kingdom, not gives them to him. He delegates them to him. And so the keys of the kingdom are a sign of authority. And when the royal steward dies, you don't throw the keys away. They go to a successor and a new successor. Eliakim in Isaiah 22 succeeded Shebna. Always when the, one man dies, the keys get delegated to a new man. There is a succession. And that happened in the early church too. So Jesus gives Peter as the king. He gives Peter the keys. And now Peter, the keys in charge of the kingdom. And when Peter dies, they go to Linus, then Cletus, then Clement, and all the way down 266 to Pope Francis. Now here's the picture. 
This is what that site looked like at the time of Jesus. See over to the side, the big temple on the yeah. right, I think you see it. That behind there is a huge cave. And the pagans would walk through that big white temple, which was there at the time of Christ, and they would throw living sacrifices into that big cave. And then that they would come running out to see if the water was running out from under the cave. If the water had blood in it, it meant that the gods down below had rejected their sacrifice, their living sacrifice. If there was no blood in the river that came out from under the cave, that meant that the gods down below, namely Pan, the god Pan, had accepted your sacrifice. So these pagans came and they viewed that cave as the entrance into the netherworld or the gates of hell. Well, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, look at all of the language Jesus is saying that relate to this place, a rock. There's a rock. You're Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church. 500 feet long, 100 feet high. Then he said, I'm going to build my church. Well, there's a fake church. He's building the true church. And what? The gates of hell behind here is not going to prevail against the new church. And then I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And, and I'll see if I shows you here. Yeah, I think you can see a little bit here. Right in there, there's niches. And in yes. those niches, at the time of Christ, there were idols, statues. The name, one number one was Pan, which is why the city was called Banyas. Because you know, probably in Arabic, there's no letter P. So That's the right. city was called Panyas, pa -pa -pa Panyas, but the Arabs don't call it that. They don't have peace, so they call it Banyas. But Panyas is the city of Pan, the god Pan, who is the horny goat with a man's head and the goat behind. He chases the girls through the forest. And what was the god Pan the god of? Pan is the god of sheep and shepherds. Good grief, what is Jesus doing to Peter right now? He's appointing him as the new shepherd. Not pan. <laughs> All of these things fit together. See, that's why uh, Jesus took them up to Caesarea Philippi. And if you come on a pilgrimage with us, I'll tell you all of this and you'll see with your own eyes. But this wait. image, this picture, the geography of that place explains Matthew 16. It explains the name. It explains the keys. It explains that being a shepherd, all of that is right there in front of your eyes. I had to go there because there's no books that talk about this. I now talk about it in my books yes. and movies so that people can understand it. And that's why I'm proud to be Catholic. You can imagine Jesus pointing, you know, I'm on this rock I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And they know yeah. exactly what he's talking about. Oh, my goodness. It's right that's, there in front of their eyes. Phenomenal. Thank you for sharing. Mind is blown right now. <laughs> and when we go there, I tell people, pick up a piece of that rock. I should have brought these things down here with me, but I have all this stuff in my museum, um, a piece of that rock. And I tell people, take a piece home and give it to your priest or to your friend named Peter. Tell him that this rock, if it had ears and a mouth, it would tell you what it heard Jesus say 2,000 years ago. It's amazing. Now, yeah, you know, everything you're just saying here is not just sort of um, thrown in new. There's a lot of Old Testament um, backup here uh, of of the idea of you know um, the understanding of the Petrine primacy. What is that? You know, the structure of the kingdom of Israel. Um, you know, the the chair of Moses. Can you comment here about this comparison here from the Old Testament to to, to this point? Yeah, well, what we've said up till now just shows you how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom yes. of God, there's always a king, and the king has a royal steward, and the royal steward carries the keys of the king. Simple as that. When I'm at this location, I do a whole talk. I don't have time to do the whole talk here about the keys. <laughs> I just, I'm just touching, scratching the surface. 
But we also have in the Old Testament something about the chair. We have this crazy thing in the Catholic Church. And people look at it and they say, this is so bizarre. You say that when the Pope sits in a chair, everything he says is infallible. Where do you get this crazy idea? Well, this is because people don't study their history and they don't know a lot of how the Old Testament and Jewish culture, remember Jesus was, if he was anything, he was a Jew. Mary was a Jew. They understood the Jewish culture, the Jewish history, the Jewish traditions. Not all traditions of the Jews were bad. Moses, when he went up Mount Sinai and he came back down, he came back down with three things. He had the word of God inscribed in stone. He had the oral the mouth, oral Torah, which was never written down, but it was practiced. And he had the chair of Moses. Exodus 18, Moses took his seat. He took his chair and he judged the people. Now, the church is the new Israel. And you would expect the new Israel to have a similar structure of authority as the old Israel. They're going to be totally radically different. It's going to have the same basic structure. And guess what we have? When Jesus, who is the new Moses, and if you don't realize that, read Matthew, especially Matthew chapters 5, 1 and 2, where it says that Jesus went up a mountain and he sat and he taught the people. That is Moses. Moses went up the mountain and then he came down and sat and he taught the people. Matthew's trying to tell you that Moses, Jesus is the new Moses. Moses went up the mountain and came down with three sources of authority. Jesus is the new Moses. He gives us the scripture, written scripture, the oral tradition, and the chair of Moses. Oh, nope, now it's a chair of Peter. The chair of Moses is transferred to the chair of Peter because that was known for the Jews as the symbol of authority. The Jews do not stand when they teach like I would stand in an auditorium and I teach. The Jews sat in a chair when they taught because it represented the chair of Moses and his authority. And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 2, Jesus said to the Pharisees and to all the people following him, he said, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in the chair of Moses, the cathedra. Therefore, do whatever they tell you. But don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. But when they teach you from the chair of Moses, do whatever they tell you. Jesus acknowledges the tradition of the chair of Moses and of the tradition and of the written word of God. And when you go into the new church, the chair of Peter replaces the chair of Moses. So we have had a chair for 3,500 years, not just since Peter. The chair of Peter started all the way with Moses. It says in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish tradition, that God came down and spoke to Moses on the mountain. And Moses passed on his authority to Joshua. Joshua to the prophets, the prophets to the, to the judges, the judges to the prophets, and the prophets to the great assembly. That understanding of authority passed all the way down. Jesus accepted that tradition of authority, but he says, now I'm giving you, Peter, the authority. And Peter then takes up the chair, and now 266 successors since Peter, but you can say maybe even 400 successors since Moses. <laughs> We've had the chair of Peter. So for 3,500 years, people have been able to trust the words, thus saith the Lord. Amazing. Amazing. That's, oh, we've got to read the Old Testament, unpack all that. But uh, that's what I love about your style and, your, and, the, and this background knowledge. Now, now, can I put you on the spot in New Testament? Are there any other New Testament supports of the papacy? You've just said uh, you've made a strong link. Do we have any other evidence in the New Testament that Peter is really... Uh, the first pope. 
the whole, um, in, in the book of Acts, for example, Peter is the only apostle we hear speak. You have 12 apostles. Yes. John never says anything. James never says a word. Peter, Andrew, James, Bartholomew, Philip, Matthew, Thomas, none of them say a word in the, in the book of Acts. Peter is the only one that speaks in the book of Acts, other than Paul later. But Peter is the one that stands up on the day of Pentecost and speaks the word. He's the one that brings the first Gentile convert into the faith. He performs miracles, stupendous miracles at the beginning. Ananias and Sapphira lie and they die at his feet. But you also have Luke 22, 32, which is interesting because here Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded uh, permission to sift you as wheat, to give you a lot of trouble, in other words, to cause you big problems. But I have prayed for you, singular. Mm. Doesn't mean I prayed for all of you. I prayed for you singular because he says, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you all, y'all like wheat. Yes, that's plural. Satan is going to sift all of the disciples. We're going to shift them and give them big problems. Okay, all of them. But I am going to pray for you, Peter, singular, so that when you are recovered, once you have turned again, now strengthen your brothers, those other ones, strengthen them. So you have this whole idea that all of the apostles are going to be in a bad situation. They're going to be sifted by the devil, attacked. But Peter, I'm praying only for you. I'm not praying for Thomas, Andrew, John, or James. I'm praying for you, Peter, so that when you come back to your senses, when you come back and you're repentant, turn back around, I want you then to go and strengthen your brothers. There's a sign right there of Jesus's unique call of authority to Peter. And the fathers of the church, even John Chrysostom, who many people say, the doctor of the church, who said that he does never support the primacy, he says about this passage, he gave Peter a special calling even to be the one who strengthens the other apostles, the other bishops. Now we got uh, Matthew 10, 2, where it says, now the names of the 12 apostles were these, the first, and in the Greek, that means primary, primo, mm -hmm. priority, Peter. Do you ever see a list of the apostles where Peter is not listed first and even said to be first? You got Peter, then comes Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, sir. And, and who's the last always? Judas Iscariot. Yes. <laughs> There's something in the order of the list that tells you of Jesus's priority of those 12. Now you got also um, John chapter uh, 21 at the end where Jesus, after he meets them on the Sea of Galilee, he says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, I love you. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. The reason he did that is because everybody there saw Peter deny Jesus. And had Jesus not done this, they would have all said, Peter, you're an idiot. You're a coward. Who's, you, you, forfeited any possibility of being the head of the church. You denied Jesus at the last moment. You said you wouldn't and you did and you walked away from him. So don't ever tell us you're in charge. So Jesus at the last moment says, Peter, come here. Are you guys all listening? Peter, do you love me? You walked away from me before you answered. You were asked three questions in front of a charcoal fire. 
And why does the charcoal fire? That's really significant. I don't have to, in Israel, I do a whole half hour on this, but in front of a charcoal fire, three questions were asked of Peter and then three times he denied the Lord. Number three in the Bible means ultimate and final disavowal. Yeah. But now on a new morning, the sun's coming up. It's not night anymore like it was at the first campfire. And Peter's not cold anymore. Now it's the morning, it's light and Jesus is there. And it's a new beginning. And he says, here's a charcoal fire. And I'm going to ask you three more questions in front of this charcoal fire. Do you love me? And Peter reaffirmed his love for Jesus three times, like he had denied his Jesus three times. And all the other apostles were there and they watched Jesus bring Peter back and said, feed my sheep and tend my lambs. And in the Old Testament, again, those who feed the sheep and tend the lambs are the kings and the prophets and the priests, those who are in charge of God's people. And they did a horrendously bad job of it. And you read through the prophets, you were bad prophets. You were bad shepherds. You let my sheep starve and I'm going to come and I'm going to be the good shepherd. Who's the good shepherd? Jesus is. But now he's saying to Peter again, like with the keys, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to give you the office of shepherd. And I want you to not only to love me, but I want you also to shepherd and to feed and to tend these, meaning the other apostles too. Mm. The word tend means to govern. The word feed means to teach. That is the Old Testament language. Jesus tells Peter, I want you to teach my people the sheep, and I want you to govern them. That's the job of the papacy is to teach and to govern. And Jesus gave that to Peter in John chapter 21. So there we've gone through Matthew, Mar Matthew, Luke, and John about more. And then we get into Acts and I'm, in Galatians. I don't have time to do that. But Peter's authority at the Council of Jerusalem, again, affirms that he is the one whose word is infallible because he they stood up and said who should should we have to circumcise gentiles and peter stood up and he gave his opinion on it and then james james the brother of our lord who was a cousin or the stepbrother he was at this time he was now the bishop of jerusalem peter was not mm. james was and james stood up as the pastor and said, we have had two infallible sources of authority speak to us today. Peter, who God made in charge, has spoken, and the prophet Joel has spoken. He puts Peter's word as the equivalent of Joel the prophet. And with these two infallible sources of authority as the bishop of Jerusalem, I suggest this is what we do. And so you have the whole authority of Peter there reaffirmed in the book of Acts and Galatians as Thank the Pope. That's and brilliant. Peter calls him, and Paul calls him Cephas. He calls him the rock. He doesn't call him Simon. He calls <laughs> him I, the rock. Amazing stuff. Now, uh, all that details are in your book, Upon This Rock, as well as the DVD. Yep, so you've got right the here. book there. We've got the DVD there. So amazing. Can I? Can we close with one last question? Sure. Uh, something that's quite common, people may ask, infallibility. How can we claim the Pope is infallible? I mean, is that a, is that a bit a step too far? How do we, can you just uh, clarify what infallibility of the Pope means? 
Well, it means that anything the Pope says is, is correct. I mean, the Pope can tell you the baseball scores, the football scores, he, he, and the Pope knows what the weather's going to be next week. So <laughs> it means the Pope is the smartest man on the face of the earth, and whatever he says is true, and anything he says you have to do, and you have to believe. Simple. <laughs> now that we got any other questions? <laughs> Please clarify, because that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's certainly not correct. I'm just, I'm teasing folks because Catholics too often do not know their faith and there's some that are going to be scratching their head. Is that right? No, of course it's not right. You should all say to me, no, that's not right, Steve Ray, you're wrong. The, the infallibility means that the Holy Spirit is going to superintend the church. That means that from the beginning until the end, when the church defines something and does it infallibly, from the chair, we as Catholics can know the truth. We don't have to have an uncertainty. There is a certainty for us, and it is the gift of infallibility. The Pope doesn't, he's not infallible when he's talking about football scores. He's not infallible when he's talking about the weather. This Pope is not infallible when he talks about immigration or the climate change. Mm -hmm. Sorry to say, but it's true. He's not infallible about those things. In fact, He's wrong on most of those things, in my opinion. And when you when the Pope speaks infallibly, he has it's under only certain conditions. Number one, he has to be doing it as the supreme pastor of the church from the chair of Peter. It doesn't mean he has to be actually sitting in the chair. There is a chair in St. John Lateran's the Mother Church of Rome, but he doesn't have to actually sit in there. It's a symbolic authority. So he speaks as the universal pastor of the church from the chair of Peter, he's speaking to everyone in the church. And he's only fallible in the areas of faith and morals, not sports and climate. Only in issues of faith and morals. And only when he speaks of his own free will without being coerced. And only when he is intending to define a doctrine of the faith which will become obligatory for all Catholics to accept as infallible truth. Now, this Pope has never done that. This Pope has never taught infallibly that way. The last time was in the uh, dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Mary it was the last time a Pope infallibly defined doctrine. Although we understand that as the successor of Peter, the Pope is a fallible person and he can have his opinions on anything he wants, and his opinions can be correct or incorrect, just like yours or mine can be. But mm -hmm. as the head of the church, we expect him to speak with prudence, and we give him a deference of obedience because of his office. Just like that. He is the pope. There are some people saying they don't like him, and he's not really the pope anymore. Benedict is not. Benedict relinquished the papacy. Pope mm -hmm. Francis was elected. He is the Pope. Whether we like that or not, it's not the issue. He is the Pope. And we give him deference as the Holy Father. And that's what we do as Catholics. And But he has never yet to this point given an infallible teaching. And we give him deference and study what he says. Um, yes. And and that, that's the way we have to view it today. We do have a pope. There's been bad popes and there's been good popes. There's been moral popes and very immoral popes. There's been smart popes and dumb popes, handsome popes and ugly popes. And, and being protected the whole time. And, and that's it's the been beauty. Protected. 
And the church, remember this, folks, too. The church is not about the Pope. The church is about Jesus Christ. He wow. is building his church. Popes come and go. Bishops come and go. The church is Jesus Christ, and that's why I'm here. Amen. Beautifully said. Thank you. We're out of time. Would you believe okay, that? Well, next, next time we're going to go move out of Jerusalem and this kind of tight biblical uh, context of Israel and the book of Acts. And we're going to now spread out over the face of the earth. Peter goes one way, Paul goes another way. And we're going to look at Paul, who just was an amazingly tough little guy, wiry little guy. He only had one eyebrow, by the way. We'll explain <laughs> that next time. And he went out into the whole world. We're going to discuss him because he that's the stage of the story of salvation where the gospel gets spread out. And then we're going to go to the to the apostolic fathers in the early centuries of the church. So I'm looking forward to doing it with you, Charbel. Very excited. So that will be next month. Uh, we'll bring that to you. So look out each month. And this has now become a collection, this series. You can go back and watch these podcasts, which will complement nicely these DVDs. And I invite you to, to get a copy of the DVDs. They're fantastic. Nine at the moment available. There is one to go, right? What is that last one going to be about? It'll be the doctors of the church. And because of this uh, whole travel ban stuff, it probably won't be until 2022 or 2023. But well, it's the doctors of the church and it's on my radar screen to get it done. Can you please send me a link where I can find all of these talks we've done. Absolutely. Send Absolutely. me a link where I can find them. Thank you very much. God bless you, Charbel. I know Thank you got to run. Much. God bless you. Keep it up. Catholicconvert.com. Catholic yes, that's right. So to visit Steve Ray, go to catholicconvert.com. Thank you, Steve Ray. God bless you.